0: Bad things happen to good people? Why is there so much evil and suffering in this world? You say you believe in God, well, where's your God now? You ever had someone ask you those questions before? You ever ask yourself those questions? It's questions like these that is the reason why many Christians often turn to this interesting story. In the Old Testament, the story about a man by the name of Job. We started looking at the story of Job last week, but Job tells us the story of a man who had great wealth and and livestock, a healthy and a big family, but all of that was taken from him to serve as some kind of test and we get this picture of something that happened up in the heavenly places in the throne room of God when Satan comes and approaches God and, and asks him to put Job to the test, and God allows it. And Job, who was blameless and upright, had everything taken from him. And then three of Job's friends show up on the scene. Eliaphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. These three men are supposed to represent all of the wisdom of the ancient world, experts in the workings of the world and how things are to operate. And when they show up on the scene and they see Job, they respond with compassion. Listen to what they did. When Job's three friends, Eliathaz, Bildad, and Zophar, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. And when they saw Job from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. It was a way of weeping in the ancient days. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Seven days of mourning over this loss that Job experienced. These friends were overwhelmed by Job's suffering, but the silence broke after the seventh day. Job spoke up. He cursed the very day that he was born. And he begins to vent his anger over his great loss and even begins to question God and and why God would allow all of this to happen to him. Listen to the way he starts the whole thing. May the day of my birth perish. And the night that said a boy is conceived, that day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. In other words, Job wanted his birth date to be wiped off the calendar And it's after this that this great debate begins. Because over the course of the next 30 chapters of Job, one of Job's friends is going to respond to Job's initial outburst. And then Job is going to respond to that friend. And then the second friend will respond to Job. And Job will respond to the second friend. And then the last friend will speak up. And Job will respond to the last friend. And this will go back and forth, and it will happen in three cycles. You can kind of see an outline of the book right up on the screen. But this whole debate is over the justice of God and how God operates this world. It's spoken in very poetic language, as you'll see this morning. But all four of these men, Job and his three friends, they're working with this one big assumption— The assumption that everything should operate according to the strict rule of justice. That for every good and wise and and perfect choice in person, God will give a reward and award success. But for every evil and stupid and sinful action in person, there'll be punishment and disaster. It's a one-for-one system. And with this assumption... Job's constant argument throughout these 30 chapters is that he is innocent, and therefore his suffering is not a result of God's justice for the wrong he's done. In other words, he's not being punished because he's done something wrong, And according to God's own word, this is true of Job. You may remember this from last week. In Job chapter 1 and verse 8, when God said to the Satan character, He said, He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. So Job's argument is right up to this point until his conclusion. He concludes his argument by accusing God and saying, Either God doesn't run this world according to the strict principles of justice, or worse, that God himself is unjust. That is Job's argument throughout this entire middle section. The friends disagree with Job's argument. They argue that God is just and that he um, always runs the world according to the strict rule of justice. And therefore, Job must have done something terribly wrong. There's some sin that Job must have committed they even began to come up with potential sins that Job may have committed in order to bring about this disaster upon himself. Finally, Job just gives up on his friends, and he declares for one last time, I'm innocent, and then he begins to take up his case with God. Job is on this emotional roller coaster. He says all sorts of things throughout these 30 chapters. First, he wants to believe that God is just but he's having trouble reconciling that with all the injustices that he's facing. Maybe you've been there. Job has accused God of being a bully and being responsible for all the injustices of the world. But even with this accusation, he still wants to believe that God is just, that he's fair, and that he operates this world in accordance with justice and fairness. And then finally, Job calls on God to show up personally and explain himself and his actions. And this section ends with one final friend showing up. He's kind of a mysterious character, but the last friend's name is Elihu the Buzite. Elihu's argument is a little different because he offers a bit of a different perspective. He argues that God is just, that God operates his world according to justice. But he has a different conclusion than the friends. He concludes that perhaps it's true that Job hasn't sinned. Perhaps all the injustices that have come upon him are to serve as some kind of warning to avoid some future evil, or perhaps it was done to build character. Now, Elihu never claims to know why Job is suffering, just that Job should not accuse God of being unjust. And interestingly enough, Job never responds to this guy. And it ends this entire section, these big, long debates back and forth, these 30 chapters. All the dialogue between the friends come to a close. And I love the way that Tim Mackey, he is the uh, founder of the Bible Project, and actually the one who all these images came from, the Bible Project video on the book of Job. He says this at the close of this section when describing the book of Job. He says, it's like the wisdom of the ancients have been spent in the mystery Remains. The mystery remains. Now, God's going to end up showing up in chapter 38 and respond to Job and the friends, but we're going to look at that next week. For right now, I want to focus on this section, chapters 3 through 37, and look at that big assumption. That assumption that all of the men had that God operates this world in a one for one system. For every good deed, there's a good reward. For every bad deed, there is a punishment. But also I want to look at the mystery that still remains. See, the mystery of this section of the book is that it never answers the question of why good people suffer. Job is never told in this book why all of this is happening. He's never told about what happened up in heaven between God and the Satan character. Rather, what this section of the book seems to address is this question. By what kind of policies... Does God run the universe? And by this, I mean this. What kind of universe are we living in where good people do suffer? And what does that say about how God is running our world? And what can we conclude about the character of God based on all of these injustices? The problem with Job and his friends is that each of them wanted to comment and had an assumption about how God operates this world. But even if this big assumption that all of them had is true, even if this is true, there's still one big, huge fact. It's an assumption. It's not a fact. And God never stated to the friends or to Job that this is how he runs the world. Matter of fact, we'll see next week that God says the world is too complex for us to understand and know how everything operates. There's no way this world with all of its complexities can operate in a one-for-one system. And it's the problem many people get into today when they begin to open their mouth and comment on why things happen, when they make suggestions or theological assumptions and apply them to other people's lives— When people open their mouths and speak why such and such a disaster occurred in a certain city or why so and so has been diagnosed with a certain disease, it's in times like these that many people begin to act like Job and his friends. They claim to possess a kind of wisdom, a kind of knowledge of why things are the way that they are. Maybe you've had someone do this to you before. Perhaps you've done this yourself. And so, if that's not how the world operates, if it's not a one-for-one system and, and, and that Job's friends are wrong to assume that, it begs us to ask the question, then what can we know? Can we have any insight into how this world operates or any wisdom on how things are working and why good people suffer? Can we know anything about this great mystery? And in order to answer that question, we're going to look at one chapter in Job Job chapter 28, it's a short chapter in the middle of these long section of speeches, and in it, Job is speaking to the three friends, and he asks two questions. What is wisdom, and where can wisdom be found? What is wisdom, and where can wisdom be found? Now, it's important to keep in mind that those are the questions that is being discussed in this entire section Because each of the friends, including Job, are trying to draw a conclusion on why all of this is happening to Job. They've made an assumption about how God has designed and operates the world. They claim to possess wisdom and know why all of this is happening. Yet, as we know, none of them are right in their conclusions. So what is wisdom, and where can wisdom be found? Job starts off this chapter, and he makes this claim Wisdom cannot be uncovered in this world. Listen to this. There is a mine for silver. In a place where gold is refined, iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Mortals put an end to the darkness. They search out the farthest recesses for ore in the blackest darkness. Far from human dwellings they cut a shaft. In places untouched by human feet, far from other people they dangle and they sway. The earth from which food comes is transformed below as by fire. Lapsus lazuli, it's a kind of bluish rock, comes from its rocks and its dust contains nuggets of gold. No bird of prey knows the hidden path. No falcon's eye has seen it. Proud beasts do not set foot on it and no lion prowls there. People assault the flinty rocks with their hands and lay bare the roots of the mountains. They tunnel through the rocks and their eyes see all of its treasures. They search the sources of the rivers and bring hidden things to light. A lot of poetry. To make this point, Job is comparing wisdom to the search for precious jewels and metals, things like silver and gold, copper and iron. And he acknowledges that mankind has done well to mine for these precious gems. Mining was actually a practice of the ancient times, and these kinds of advancements were examples of mankind's ingenuity, their skill, their brilliance, and their creative ability to search and to find these valuable pieces. But although they are able to light up these dark caves, climb up these high mountains, search in the farthest of recesses, although they are able to find these precious metals, even in places where most people hadn't even yet set foot They still could not locate the world's most precious commodity, wisdom itself. Wisdom could not be uncovered in this world. And so, what is wisdom? Where can wisdom be found? The mystery still remains. Can we have any insight into how God is working in this world? Job points out this in verse 7 and 8, another thing from this section here, that the birds have a keen eyesight. They have a great ability to see a bigger picture because they're above everything else. The lions, likewise, are able to quickly roam about the earth in search of food, yet neither the bird with its great eyesight nor the lion with its ability to quickly roam can find even those precious metals, but we as humans can find them. But even still, even though we're superior to the animals who have a great eyesight and ability to quickly roam the earth, we still can't find wisdom Even with our great ability, our wonderful ingenuity and creativity and power that we have, we still can't locate wisdom. So what is wisdom and where can wisdom be found? Job goes on in his poem and he says this, wisdom can't be bought. He says, but where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? No mortal comprehends it. It cannot be found in the land of the living The deep says it's not in me. The sea says it's not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed out in silver. It can't be bought with the gold of Ophir, the precious onyx, or lapis lazuli. Neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had for jewels of gold. Coral and jasper are not worthy of mention. The price of wisdom is beyond rubies. The topaz of Cush cannot compare with it. It cannot be bought with pure gold. Where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? When it says wisdom and understanding, those words mean the same thing here. And in this poem is a search for wisdom, a search for the plan, the grand design by which the universe is governed. Job's friends have stated that they possess that wisdom because they know how God is working in this world or should I say they claim to know how God is working in this world. But as Job has pointed out so far in this chapter, no man has been able to locate and uncover wisdom. He says man cannot comprehend it nor know its place. And Job then says in verses 14 and 19, neither can wisdom be bought First, it can't be found. It can't be found in the land of the living. It's not deep within the sea. No, not the highest of heights nor the lowest of lows. It's not there. And it has so great of worth and value, even the most valuable commodities of the ancient world, gold and crystal, topaz, coral, jasper, they couldn't pay for wisdom because wisdom's more valuable than money. See, searching all over the world for answers won't get you there. Because wisdom's not in the world, it's not going to be in the ancient, uh, uh, sorry, in the Eastern worldviews, nor is it in the modern Western lifestyle. It's not high in the sky or out in outer space. Wisdom can't be uncovered in the world, nor can wisdom be bought. So what is wisdom, and where can wisdom be found? Listen closely to the way Job concludes his search for wisdom. Where does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It's hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds in the sky. Destruction and and death, they say, only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it. He alone knows where it dwells he views the ends of the earth, and he sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and the path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom, and he appraised it, he confirmed it, and he tested it. God alone possesses wisdom. God alone knows how the world is designed and how the world operates because God alone created it. He's the only one that knows the exact measurements of the ocean because he's the one that measured them out when he created them. God alone possesses wisdom and he sees the ends of the earth for he views the ends of the earth. God alone possesses wisdom. And God knows the rain and the path of the thunderstorm. You and I, through modern science, can make guesses about where a storm's coming from or where it's headed. But God alone knows because he's decreed it and declared it to be so. God alone possesses wisdom. He alone knows how the world is designed and how the world operates because he alone created it. And the Bible confirms this truth all throughout. Paul says in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, Romans 16, 27, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Or again, Paul says in Romans 11, 33, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. The prophet Daniel in the Old Testament says this in two twenty, praise be to the name of God forever and ever, wisdom and power are his. Or the wisdom of the Proverbs say, by wisdom, the Lord laid the foundations of the earth. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. So what is wisdom? God alone knows. Where can wisdom be found? God alone possesses it. But there's a problem with this. The problem is not that God alone knows wisdom and possesses it. The problem is, and I want you to follow me here, the problem is if we say that only God knows wisdom and you and I can't know wisdom, then how can we say that only God knows wisdom? I know this is second service, so it's a little later in the morning, but let me say that again and I'll put it up on the screen for you to follow with me, okay? Here it is. If we say that God alone knows and possesses wisdom and we can't know wisdom, then how can we say that only God knows wisdom? This is the tension of the text, and it is a logical fallacy. Unless, unless God makes wisdom known to us. Listen to how Job ends this poem. And God said to the human race, the fear of the Lord That is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. See, the same God who alone knows the way of wisdom, who has established wisdom as the primary principle behind the creation of this world, he offers it to mankind. God offers wisdom to anyone who humbly submits to him. And when we fear God... And the word fear here does not mean terror. It means reverence. When we fear or revere God and pursue the good that he's laid out for us, we are actively acknowledging that God alone is sovereign and good and that he alone possesses wisdom. And when we do this, our lives take on meaning and purpose because we're aligning ourselves with the will of the sovereign and holy God who is in charge of everything. See, this world's not run by any kind of system. It's not run on the system that Job and his friends thought, a one-for-one system. No, this world is run on the wisdom of God, which we will never fully comprehend. However, when we humble ourselves, when we choose to fear or revere God, when we piously and humbly submit ourselves to Him, he gives us wisdom. And God has made truths known to us about who He is, about who we are, and about how we can live in this world. And He's made it known to us in this, His Word. And we believe that this book is the inspired Word of God, that it is truth without any mixture of error And we can know truths and possess wisdom when we devote ourselves to reading and studying and living out what this book says, because this book gives us insight into God and how God operates the world, because God has made it known to us. See, the problem with Job and his friends is that God never revealed to them why Job was suffering. He never told them about the tests that happened up in the throne room. And you and I as readers, we know about that test. But even still, we don't know why God allowed Satan to do that. We don't know why God hasn't revealed that truth to us. But we still can know truths. We can know truths about God. And we can possess wisdom. But only because God has made it known to us in his word. I love the cry that Martin Luther gave as he stood up against the Roman Catholic Church one of his pillars of his stance against the Catholic Church was sola scriptura. It's this Latin phrase that means Scripture alone. And the reason why this is one of his great cries is because the Catholic, Catholic Church had slowly begun to develop teachings and doctrines and practices that were never taught in the Scriptures. And Luther wanted to bring Christians back to the Bible because he understood it is only Scripture that tells us the truths about God. It's only Scripture that tells us the truth about you and I as human beings. It's only Scripture that teaches us how we should live and what we should believe. The Scriptures alone teach us the way to God. See, we hold to no other book but the Bible, no other creed but Christ. It is crucial that in everything we say and believe, that we approach it with humility we should always exercise great caution in our theological assumptions, especially when applying it to others' lives. So, before we make an assumption about why a disaster happened or why so-and-so is being diagnosed with a certain disease or why our country is the way that it is or it's turned its back on God, before we make all of those assumptions, we should ask ourselves this question. Has God revealed it to us? Has He given us insight into why these things have happened And if his word does not give us insight or truths into the situation, we shouldn't make the same mistake that Job and his friends made by making assumptions. Rather, we should take the position they had on the first seven days, that of silence. When the Bible speaks, we'll speak, but with humility. And when the Bible's silent, we should stay silent. We should piously and humbly submit our lives to the one and only true, sovereign, and holy God, putting our trust in Him. And that's hard to do when we don't have all the answers. But that same scripture that tells us about that mysterious, all wise God also tells us that He's all powerful. And because God is boundless in wisdom and endless in power, it makes Him utterly worthy of our fullest trust. See, the only wise response to the only wise God is to trust Him completely, to trust what He says, and to trust in His Word that makes promises like that of Romans 8 and 28, that God is working together, all things together, for the good of those who love Him. This all-wise, all-powerful God has revealed Himself to us. And although we can't understand everything, we can know truths. And we can hold on to those promises like Romans 8 and 28. God has made himself known to us. But more importantly, he's made known to us the way to himself. The writer of Hebrews tells it to us this way. Romans, or sorry, Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days... He spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of the God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And, he, and when he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. See, God first spoke to his people Israel through the law and through his messengers, the prophets, the Old Testament. But he also speaks to us, or has, he's revealed himself to us in this way, through his Son. And Jesus is the exact representation of who God is. And so if you want to know who God is, you look to Jesus. Jesus is the one who made purification for our sins That is, Jesus made our relationship with God right again. And through his death, he atoned for our sins, and he offers us forgiveness. And through him, we can have access to God. And we know all of this because of the word. It is God alone who possesses wisdom. It is God alone who knows how this world is made, for he made it. And it's God alone who knows how the world operates. And this same God makes wisdom accessible to us through his Son, Jesus. Paul tells the young preacher Timothy, you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Church, there is no book like the Bible, for it alone offers us a message of hope. It alone gives us meaning and purpose for this life. It alone offers us the most evidence for the most fulfilled and meaningful life. It alone offers us a message of forgiveness, a message of good news, a way to salvation. It tells us of an old, old story about how Savior came from glory, how He gave His life on Calvary to save a wretched man like me. There is no God like the God of the Bible. And today, people are searching for answers. They're asking why. Why me? Why all of this? Why am I here? Where are we going? Why? And this book, God's Word, offers us answers, answers that satisfy the soul, that satisfy our deepest longings, because they give us wisdom and insight and understanding, because they point to God who alone possesses wisdom and knows wisdom. And they tell us that when we humble ourselves, When we piously submit to trust in this God, we recognize that although we may not have all the answers and understand and be able to put our thumb on why everything is the way that it is, that we know that this same God is at work in this world and he gives us truths that no other worldview, no other religion, no other political or social activist group could offer But in order to access this kind of meaning and purpose, this kind of wisdom, it starts with fear, but not terror and dread, not horror, distress, or fright, no, fear, reverence, adoration, awe, and devotion to seek out the God of wisdom. Seek the Lord, and He will be found. Call upon Him, and He will will draw near. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are. Indeed, you are the all-wise God. You alone possess wisdom. You alone know where wisdom dwells. For you created this world, and you know how this world operates. God, you also are all-powerful, and because of that, we can trust in you. But God, we also give thanks to you because you've not concealed wisdom from us. Rather, you have revealed truth to us in your word. You've given us these sacred texts and say that when we live by them, when we follow them, we can know truths about you, about ourselves, and about this world. We thank you for your word. And we thank You that You revealed Yourself through Your Son, Jesus. You revealed that perfect plan of salvation on the cross when Jesus was nailed there to die, that He went into the tomb, that His death on the cross paid and was the purification for our sins. But on the third day, He rose to life. And He now is sitting at Your right hand in the throne room. God, I pray that we would trust You even when we don't have all the answers, trust that you are all wise and give thanks to you that you've made truths known to us. And all this we pray in the name of the risen Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.